0: And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, we thank you for the wonder of this news. Um, we just sang, "Where uh, in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Lord, we pray that would be true in our hearts this morning. We thank you for the wonder of the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he would descend from the highest of heights all the way to the lowest of depths. That the God with no limitations would condescend to the frailties of a human body that he would trade the throne for the manger and then trade the manger for the cross. Lord, these mysteries, this mystery of the God-made flesh, these are such profound things that our minds struggle to even grasp them, and yet we know that your word has not failed, and you have revealed these truths to us. And so for that, we praise you, and we thank you, that you have made these things We see later in chapter two, we know that that the shepherds marvel that God has made these things known to them, and Lord, we marvel that you have made them known to us. Lord, we are so familiar with this tale that we can grow overly familiar with it that it stops to amaze us, and so I ask that you would stir in our hearts this morning a renewed wonder at the glories of Christ through this incarnation, and may he receive all the glory, all the honor, all the praise in our hearts and our minds this day. And we ask this in the beautiful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we'll be at this morning. It's a story that's quite familiar to most, if not all of us. In fact, if I were to start by just reading the opening words that Aubrey just read to us and say, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and to stop there you could probably keep going you could probably fill in some of the gaps, fill in some of the details. And so we're pretty familiar with these things and we are maybe overly familiar with them in the sense that it ceases to amaze us, that we lose our wonder at what is really being described here. Maybe you'll even read this story this upcoming week or in the weeks to come with family or friends and you'll gather and you'll read this story. So we do when we gather together as a family. This year will be our first Christmas celebrating without my grandfather, but every year he would read us the Christmas story before we opened gifts or any of those activities. And it was after the meal. I mean, there's only so, you know, only stretch it so far, but it was before all the gifts and all the other activities. And you know, as a kid, it was always a special thing to have grandpa read the Christmas story, but at the same time, you're thinking, I already know this, let's move on to the gifts. Um, and the way that our family does the gift exchange is that you would draw a name and you don't know who has your name and there's 30 some people there. And so you're, you know, it, it, you could be waiting a long time. And so as a kid, the last thing you wanna do is add on top of it, hey, we gotta read this story we've heard 100 times before. And so, you, you know, you, you get that. But at the same time, there's a childlike wonder that comes at Christmas time too, isn't there? That even though Christmas comes every year, even though it's, it's the same thing every year, the, the kids are just captivated by the wonder of it all. And so maybe for us, we could use some of those childlike eyes this morning as we remember the wonder of this story, the familiar story, one we've heard before, no doubt, but one that I pray captivates our minds and our hearts afresh today. It is perhaps true that our greatest challenge is not whether we are entertaining things that are false, but whether we are still enthralled with the things that are true, Trevin Wax writes this, the church faces her biggest challenge not when new errors start to win, but when the old truths no longer wow. And so our goal this morning is to be wowed, to be amazed, to be captivated by these old, old truths in this old, old story of the incarnation of the Christ to be with us. And this story begins by saying, in those days this happened. This is no fairy tale. Fairy tales, once upon a time this happened. This is, in those days, in a very real moment in history, this actually did happen. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It's telling you this really did happen. This was a real moment in history. There really was a Caesar Augustus. uh, He was the first official emperor of the Roman Empire. His, His name was Gaius Octavius, and he later became known as Caesar Augustus. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. You might be familiar with him. And he rose to power in the wake of Julius Caesar's assassination. In fact, he was the adoptive son of Julius Caesar. And after some fighting over power, It is this Gaius Octavius became known as Caesar Augustus who ascends to the throne and becomes the first official emperor of this mighty empire. And still today, if you look at uh, what historians consider to be the greatest of all Roman emperors, it would be Caesar Augustus, who would be at or near the very top. He was a good emperor who brought about much advance for the, 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 the empire that we know of today. In fact, he, he laid the foundation for what we know of. He did massive building projects. He saw the empire expand vastly and rapidly. And the title Augustus even denotes how some people came to view him as like a god. Augustus means majestic one or exalted one. In fact, we get our month of August from Caesar Augustus. It's named for him. Augustus denotes majesty, and that was a problem for the Jews because they believed that all majesty, all glory, all exaltation belongs only to the one true God and not to Caesar. And so the Jews uh, struggled under Caesar's reign, but the Romans uh, flourished under it. They saw him as a good emperor and saw him as a god. Now, in order for Augustus to rule this Empire. He had to have others working underneath him. Think about the way that we have it set up in, in our country. So you've got the president and over, you know, over the country, and then you've got governor over a state, and then you've got mayor over a town. Think of it in that regard, and so too with the Roman Empire. So you have Caesar Augustus over the whole Roman Empire. In fact, it says that all the world should be registered. So it's just telling you, hey, this, this is the biggest empire known to man at the time. And so you've got Caesar over the Roman Empire. Then you've got kings who rule different regions. Luke 1 tells us that this happened in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And then under that, you've got governors of certain areas. And Quirinius was the governor of Syria. These are real people. It does present for us a little bit of a challenge because uh, this is true history. And so the historical records of, okay, Quirinius and Herod and uh, Herod, died in 4 BC, so it is likely that Jesus was born sometime in the years prior to 4 BC, so I hate to burst your bubble thinking, oh, it was in year zero. It was probably a little earlier than that. Quirinius took a census in 6 AD, and so you start thinking, okay, wait a second, how do these stories match up together? If we believe that the Bible is the inerrant and inspired word of God, most importantly, but also believe what Luke tells us, that he took meticulous historical records, what do we do with that? Well, quite simply, they fit together wonderfully. We just don't know exactly how it all plays out. For example, it is possible that the word he uses for governor here, for Quirinius, is a more general term. Quirinius was governing before he was actually governor. That's possible. It's possible that the word he uses here when it's the first census uh, before he was governor of Syria could be translated meaning, uh, hey, this was the one that happened right before he was governor. That could be possible. Or it could be that this census just took a really long time to be accomplished in a massive empire like this. We don't need to see it as a historical challenge. But the reason I even bring that up is to tell you that the historical fact of this story is clear. There really was a man named Caesar Augustus who ruled over the Roman Empire. And under his rule was born a baby in Bethlehem who would change the world this really did happen in history. And so there really was a day in history where a decree came from Caesar in Rome all the way to Joseph and Nazareth about a census that was to be taken, a census that was likely taken for tax purposes. It was taxation, maybe to fund the massive building projects that were being undertaken. See, Caesar Augustus was known for some of the, some of the massive building projects that he undertook, including a temple to Caesar. And so it is no small irony that the, Caesar, who is known for building, issues a decree that reaches a humble builder in Nazareth named Joseph. So the message comes bringing the news of a census. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes, Mary's shoes, for a moment in those days. Joseph was out in his shop trying to keep up with his work. You know, he certainly doesn't have a budding enterprise, but it was enough to keep him busy and to keep the bills paid, and so he was out one day working in, uh, in the shop, and uh, you know, in his day, probably carpentry meant working with stone, not necessarily with wood, and so he's out building something, and, and a messenger arrives from Rome. Joseph had heard rumblings about what was coming, but he wanted to keep kind of putting it off and hoping, not, not now, not now. They say, Caesar has issued a census. And everyone's got to go home. That seems there was probably some time frame on it, too, because uh, why else would you take a nine months pregnant wife instead of waiting a few more months? There's probably some sort of time frame on this whole thing. And uh, so Joseph's just hoping, okay, please, not now. I imagine Joseph saying, this could not have happened at a worse possible time. Because Joseph was betrothed to a woman named Mary who's pregnant. Betrothal and their day was, was a, a lot more than what we think of as engagement. There was a, a kind of a legally binding nature to this that though they are not yet married, though they have not yet consummated their marriage by sleeping together, they are nonetheless committed to one another. And Mary is pregnant. And the angel has shown up to Mary and Joseph both individually as we've looked at the last two weeks and told them the story and said, you are pregnant of the Holy Spirit, even though Mary's a virgin, and this child is Jesus the Christ. And so Mary and Joseph are, uh, here they are expecting a child and Mary is nine months pregnant and she was uh, certainly uh, not exempt from the sicknesses that come from pregnancy. But what are they to do? What are they to do about this? Here what they have is that Caesar Augustus was a man who had become, uh, seemed to become a god, but here in Mary's womb was the God who had become a man. But what happens is is those in power don't really listen to people like Mary and Joseph. Joseph knew the census meant he had to go to Bethlehem, which was a place of his ancestors, and he knew that meant a 100-mile journey away. And In our day, we think, well, that's that's nothing, 100 miles, I can do that there and back in a day. But in their day, it would've meant probably a week's journey Maybe a few days shorter. And we all like to think, well, they probably, had, you know, they probably rode on donkeys and all that, but there's nothing that tells us they rode on a donkey. In fact, a poor family like Mary and Joseph probably didn't have one. And so here they are, Mary and Joseph, a nine months pregnant woman and her soon to be husband walking on the dusty roads 100 miles to Bethlehem. This could not have happened at a worse possible time. Put yourself in their shoes. Think how you would respond to that. But they had no choice, because those in government, the emperors, the kings, the governors, they wouldn't even have known their names, much less cared what they thought. Joseph couldn't just get online and file an extension. He knew there's there's nothing I can do about this. I've gotta go. People in power don't listen to humble peasants like Joseph and Mary, which makes it all the more staggering that as they walked along the roads to Bethlehem, the king of all kings who that very moment was sustaining and governing the universe was with them, incarnate in Mary's womb. It was a long journey, a hard journey. Uh, after a week and you know, a week of, uh, of, of walking on these roads and probably not staying in the nicest of, uh, of places, uh, finally Bethlehem comes into view. And you know what you wanna do after a long journey. You just wanna go to the hotel and crash for a little bit and then, then you'll get on with whatever whatever's next. We just want to go to the hotel. And so, so Mary looks at Joseph and says, hey, Joe, where'd you make the hotel reservations? And he thinks, I knew there was something I forgot to do. <laughs> All right, probably didn't happen exactly like that. Probably what they pictured was this, this inn they were gonna stay at was like a guest room in a house, probably belonged to a family, or a family member or a friend. And there's a, there's a guest room that people could stay in. So probably Mary and Joseph assume we'll, we'll just stay with so-and-so. But everyone was coming to town for a census, so there was going to be a hop in place. So there, there's no room all of a sudden in the room that they figured they were going to be able to stay in. So now what? And at that very moment, Mary begins to go into labor. Again, thinking, this could not have come at a worse possible time. And maybe picture Mary trying to, trying to pretend like the contraction she's feeling. Oh no, that's not really what I think it is. No, no, I'm, I'm okay. No, 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 no. Trying to, trying to hope beyond hope that this isn't actually labor. And soon it becomes unmistakable. And she goes, Joseph, I think the baby's coming. Now dads, how would you respond there? You're like, knock on. She's about to have a baby, Can please help. Well, sure enough, they find a place to stay. It's a, probably another room added onto a house And this was where they brought the animals in to stay, where they brought the animals in to keep them warm at night or to feed them. And that's where Mary and Joseph find themselves here. So now think about this. Think about where they're at. Mary and Joseph, far away from home, far away from their families, lying on some hay that was meant for animals, while Mary cries out in pain. Remember, God had told Eve in the Garden of Eden that as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. And while Mary has been obedient to the Lord's word rather than Eve, Mary experiences the pain as the consequence for Adam and Eve's sin pain in childbirth. And so Mary cries out and sweats and clutches Joseph's hand, and her husband sits by her helpless to do anything about it. Merry Christmas. Now let me ask you, have you ever found yourself in a similar situation? Okay, no, no you, you haven't, okay, I, yes. But have you ever found yourself in a place where it just felt like all the random events in your life just happened to be conspiring together against you? Have you ever felt like something happened at just the worst possible time? Have you ever felt frustrated by how the events of your life were playing out, how the events that you had long waited, long hoped for and dreamt about actually come to pass maybe that even happens at christmas time maybe the christmas season is where that happens because you dream of the way the holiday is going to happen with your family you get the perfect picture in your mind of exactly what it will be like you you have all these ideas of what the time together with our kids is going to be like or you get the perfect picture of the presents that you hope your parents bought you or you get the perfect ideas in mind of what you want to accomplish over christmas break and you think all these plans all these dreams and very quickly you realize it's not turning out like we dreamt it would Maybe Mary dreamed of having her baby at home where her mother would be right beside her to help her and care for her. Maybe Joseph dreamt of having their child and bringing him and laying him in the crib he had built and the house that he had made for their due family. Or maybe you feel like you're just a cog in the system. You're just caught up and in, invisible to those who are in authority. Maybe with the government, sure, but maybe your boss at work. Because that policy that they set forth in the workplace, that might sound nice on paper, but they get to sit back collecting the benefits of it, and you're the one inconvenienced by it. Caesar got to sit back and get money from a tax, and Mary and Joseph are the ones inconvenienced by it. Maybe you feel like everything happening in your life is just pointless and random, and and fate is conspiring against you. There's no purpose or meaning to it. There's just... All of these things that are just seem to be happening in your life right now, and so you are weary and you are tired. You're wondering if all of this is even worth it. You're wondering if anything really even matters, and you're thinking, well, maybe the only way forward is just put my head down and look out for myself because no one else seems to be doing that. And it shouldn't surprise us when we experience these things, when we experience weariness and discouragement and we experience feelings of pointlessness and meaninglessness. These are common ailments of young and old alike. It's one of the basic realities of life that all of us at various times will experience these discouragements and disappointments. I was recently watching It's a Wonderful Life. I think it's the greatest of all Christmas movies. And if you remember at the beginning of It's a Wonderful Life, um, there's a shot of the stars and you hear the angels talking. Don't get your theology of angels from that movie, by the way. Um, by the way, don't get your theology from movies in general, probably. That's a, probably the better way to say it. But if you remember what happens is the angel Clarence is summoned to get caught up to speed on the man he's going to be sent to help, George Bailey. And so Clarence comes and he's told, a man down on earth needs our help. And he responds, splendid, is he sick? And he is told, no, worse, he is discouraged. And Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. You are discouraged. You're worn down, tired out by the events in life. You're let down by things not going like you expected them to go, not like you dreamed them. Prone to think of your life as meaningless and random. But it is into these very real feelings, these very real fears, these very real longings, these very real disappointments that the good news of Christmas comes right in. You remember, the, you remember the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9? To us, a child is born. Do you remember the context of that prophecy? In Isaiah 8 and 9, here's the context into which that is uttered. The people, they're they, they, they people who have no dawn. They see no dawn. They're distressed and hungry. They're angry. The land is full of distress and darkness and anguish. That's where they find themselves. But the people who walked in darkness, we are told, have seen a great light. For to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. The good news of Christmas enters right into the midst of those discouragements, right into the midst of those disappointments, and offers hope. Into the midst of the darkness, it says, here's light. I think C.S. Lewis captured it so brilliantly in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you remember, he describes the reign of the White Witch in Narnia as being always winter, but never Christmas. You think about how much some of you love snow, and you think, always that, but never the joy of Christmas in the midst of it. There's a way of describing the, the discouragement of life, the darkness of life that we all feel, The, the always winter and yet, the good news of Christmas enters right in. If you remember in Narnia when, when the white witch's power begins to, to, to fall away, what happens? Father Christmas comes forth bringing hope. And for us, when we see the darkness of life and we we feel so discouraged by it, here comes the Christ of Christmas to offer hope. Because I want you to see that behind all of this, behind this whole story, if we were to pull back the curtain of this all so familiar tale of Christmas, we would see behind it the providential hand of a good God. This might at first seem like a random story. It might at first, on the surface, look like yet another example of a human tyrant ruling in such a way that harms and hinders the people that they govern. But look at verse four. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he is of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. It is no coincidence that this census means Joseph winds up in Bethlehem. It's not a coincidence. It's not random. Bethlehem was the place where a woman in the Old Testament named Naomi and her daughter in law Ruth went looking to try to pick up the pieces of their broken and shattered lives, only to be surprised when they found one in Bethlehem who would redeem them out of that brokenness. Bethlehem was the place in the Old Testament where a young man named David was born raised an anointed king over all of israel he was a good king who would rule in justice and yet he was surprising to those around him because he didn't fit the bill of what they pictured a human king must look like and so we could say that bethlehem then in scripture is the place of surprising redemption it's the place where people come and are surprised when they find a redeemer there whether out of the ashes of a broken life or out of the oppression of a cruel king and once more, Bethlehem would serve as the source of surprising redemption because here in Bethlehem on this night lay a child in a manger who would prove to be the Redeemer who is greater than Boaz and the King who is greater than David. This little town of Bethlehem. But that was exactly what the prophet had promised. In Micah chapter 5, God had told, told him about the coming Messiah. He said, But you, O Bethlehem Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. God says, Bethlehem, from you will come the Messiah. From you will come the King. Then the dark streets of this quiet city will shine forth the everlasting light. That the people who walked in darkness have now seen a great light. For to us a child is born. The Messiah has come. It's the promise. God made of Bethlehem and all of a sudden then in light of that we come to see this story through much different lenses because this is not the story of Caesars or censuses but beneath all of it the story of a God who works all things according to the counsel of his will he's always working to accomplish his purposes he uses human beings and human decisions and human governments to do that but he is the one behind all of it and so it begs the question for us to ask okay who's really the one in control here was certainly not Mary and Joseph. We've already seen that. But we might have begun thinking, this is Caesar who's in control. You might have begun thinking, okay, Caesar is the one with ultimate power, but the message loud and clear from the testimony of scripture is, no, it is not Caesar. It is the Lord God who reigns supreme over Caesar. Caesar issues a census for taxation without realizing that it is unwittingly serving the eternal purposes of God to get this Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem according to promise at just the right time. So yes, on a human level, it was the proclamation of a census from Caesar, but behind all of it was the sovereign will and divine decree of the God who governs the universe as he pleases and ensures that his word will be fulfilled. And he will move Mary and Joseph 100 miles at just the right time to see to it. He will move an entire empire in a census to see to it that his word is accomplished. As Spurgeon says, autocratical Caesars are but puppets moved with invisible strings, mere drudges to the king of kings. And after all, earlier in the book of Proverbs, it was said that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And friends, still today, just as much as it was then, God holds the hearts of rulers in his hands and turns them however he wills. It might have appeared as if Mary and Joseph were but pawns in Caesar's plan, but it was actually Caesar who was a pawn in God's. doesn't mean God worked against Caesar's will, but here we see how divine sovereignty and human responsibility come together. The divine sovereign God uses human decisions, human means, to accomplish his purposes. Caesar issues a census, and God uses that census to accomplish his divine purposes that were promised long before Caesar was ever even born to have this child be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who got to determine the place of his own birth long before the Son of God said that's where the Messiah is gonna come from. And in the fullness of time, he takes on human flesh and is conceived in the womb of a virgin Mary in Nazareth. And then God moves a whole empire to get them to Bethlehem where she will give birth. Do you see behind this story the purpose of God? It's true, the Christmas story is about kings. There's King Caesar over all the Roman Empire. There's King Herod over Judea who rules with an iron grip over Israel. And Matthew tells us of the wise men who come and the song says they're kings, we three kings, right? And so uh, they come looking for the baby, but none of them are actually the true king of the Christmas story. Because the true king the ultimate sovereign of the universe, the king of kings and the lord of lords who reigns supreme over Caesar, who reigns supreme over Herod, and who reigns supreme over the wise men is lying in a manger in Bethlehem. He is the one in control. This story shows us beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ is God who reigns over all, but it also shows us that this God who reigns over all is the same God who draws near to you and I. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. Now she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, maybe the most remarkable thing about Luke's account of the birth of Jesus is how unremarkable it sounds. What happened before? Conceived in the womb of a virgin? Okay, that's remarkable. What happens afterward? The angelic host filling the sky and proclaiming his glory? Okay, yeah, that's remarkable. What happens here in verse seven sounds rather ordinary. Maybe what's remarkable is how unremarkable it really sounds because what happens here is in verse seven, what it is, is, is the son of God, eternal, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger in Bethlehem, cradled in the arms of his mother. This is the arrival of the king of kings. Matthew quotes Isaiah and tells us, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? The answer is yes. Here he is. Merry Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us, the child in the manger. So marvel at the fact that while Caesar issues a decree oblivious to the fact that Joseph and Mary even exist, the king who rules over Caesar even in that moment was with Mary and Joseph right then. So what kind of ruler sees people like this? What kind of king uses his power for the good of those he serves? What kind of king sees people like Mary and Joseph in Nazareth, or people like them in Bethlehem or people like them in Ashland, Ohio. What kind of king is that? What kind of king leverages his power for our good? Well, look no further than the one who's lying in the manger. The king of kings come to be with us, come to live among us, come to walk where we walk and taste what we taste and feel what we feel. Come to rejoice and to weep, come to play and to preach, come to live and to die. At his birth, he is homeless, and at his death, he is homeless. And in between, Jesus says this, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, lying in a manger makes no sense for a king unless it tells us exactly what that king's really about. Think about it. If we we believe what we've just seen, and that this this behind this whole story, is the sovereign purpose of God... Do we really believe that he would move a whole empire, get Mary and Joseph 100 miles from home at just the right time to have this child born and that God forgot to make the hotel reservations? Or do we actually then believe that this child was born in a manger exactly as God planned it? Because his birth in the manger in the lowly, humble estates is a clue for us about who he came for. He is the one who came not to rub shoulders with the elite, not to lord his power over peasants and oppression, not to sit in a far-off palace somewhere, not to just reward those who can offer him a whole lot. He is the one who came to save humble, lowly sinners. That's why he was born to Mary. That's why he was born in Bethlehem. That's why he was born in a manger. And that's why his birth was announced to shepherds. He has come for the meek and lowly of the earth. See, See, Luke even tells us, He's born in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. But to Luke's reader, when they heard the term city of David, they would not have thought Bethlehem. They would have thought Jerusalem. In fact, when the Old Testament speaks of the city of David, it's speaking of Jerusalem, the city of kings. Last week, Dan talked about when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And you know what it says in that account? It says they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They would have thought, well, this must be the, the city of kings. That's why the, the wise men, when they come in Matthew, they come to Jerusalem to speak with Herod. Why? Because they assume if a king's been born, it must be here. They didn't expect it to be in Bethlehem. They thought it would be in the place of the kings, but really it's the place where surprising redemption is birthed. Where people are surprised by the rescuer, surprised by the redeemer who comes. You can see throughout his life, Jesus did live among human beings. and He did do the things inherent to human life except for sin. And as he did so, as he was a real human being among us, people mistook him for a prophet or a teacher or a troublemaker, but they didn't necessarily think he was the Lord. They didn't necessarily think he was the Messiah. And one of the reasons for that, one of the reasons for their mocking was his humble origins. This this baby born in Bethlehem who was raised in Nazareth, they they would ask this in mocking doubt. They would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, this, this, the humble origins of this man made people think, well, he surely must not be the king. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. But it's because he didn't come for the kings, he came for the humble, meek, lowly sinners like you and me. And the invitation, the response, when people in John said, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Here's the response Come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Here he is. Look for yourself. And still today, that's the invitation to you and I. Well, can anything good come out of Bethlehem? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can this really be the Messiah? Can this really be the Savior? Can this really be the King in this humble manger? Well, come and see. Come and see. Look at him and believe. Come and see the man, the child from Bethlehem, the man from Nazareth, the one without sin, the one who was a friend of sinners, the Savior hanging upon a cross all for you. If you come to think that the remedy for your darkness, the source of your hope, and the way your expectations will be met rests in some mighty king riding forth, you might be tempted to miss the one who lies in a manger. But if you look at the manger and look at the cross, you will see the one who came for you. That Though he reigns over all, he came to be with you and to die for you. David Platt tells a story of, uh, he was in a, another country, and he was uh, talking with some people who, uh, of different religions. And uh, th- these guys look at him and say, well, you know, really all three of us, all of our religions really are at the same, at, at, at some fundamental level, the same thing. They're all leading to the same place. Yeah, there's some differences on the surface, but we all believe much the same thing. And so David Platt looks at him and, and says, hey, is this what you're describing? Are, are you meaning that there's this, there's this kind of massive mountain? At the top of the mountain, there sits God. And there's several roads up the mountain, yeah, sure, but they all lead to God. And the guys say, that's exactly what we are meaning. And he looks at him and he says, well, what what if I told you that the God who sits atop the mountain actually came down it to be with us? And they said, well, that would be amazing. And he said, that's what the story of Christianity is about. The God who sits atop the high holy mountain didn't wait for us to make our way up to him because he knew that would be impossible. He came down to us to live among us, to dwell among us, and to die for us so that he might bring us up the mountain to live with him. That's the story of Christianity. That's the hope of the gospel that Jesus the Christ stepped down from his heavenly home and lived among us, the child who came to die. Harry Potter in The Deathly Hallows, Harry approaches Voldemort and the villain says, The boy who lived, come to die. Jesus the Christ is the one who lived, who came to die for us, came to live among us and to die. For us, Die for our sins, die for our rebellion, die so that we might come to him. And he was raised from the dead to secure for us the hope of redemption, the hope of our eternal life with him, that all who place their faith in him, all who believe in him, all who come to him and see, all who look to Christ for salvation will be saved. We just sang it, no ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Where meek souls will still receive him, he enters in. Notice, the God who holds all the power in the universe, the God who is sovereign over all things, the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will, working for you, for your good, and for your eternal happiness in him, that you would come to believe in him, and live forever. You would see the God who would move heaven and earth, the God who would move an empire in a census, the God who would take on human flesh, and the God who would go to a cross, all to save you. It's the good news of Christmas. So in light of this, I want to leave you with three words. One's a word of comfort, one's a word of challenge, and one is a word of celebration. First, let this be a word of comfort to you who feel discouraged and distressed about your life, maybe like Mary and Joseph did. So the events of your life are not random, nor are they outside of God's control, nor are they outside of God's gaze. We have the promise that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. No matter what it looked like, What it might look like right now, no matter how bleak or how random or how distressing your life might seem, right now, you trust that behind the curtain, if we were to peel back the curtain, in some mysterious providence and secret sovereignty of God, you would find a good God still on the throne, still working for you. He's working all things out for his glory and for your eternal good. And so Piper writes that the no vacancy signs over all the motels in Bethlehem were for your sake. For your sake, he became poor. God rules all things, even motel capacities, for the sake of his children. The Calvary Road begins with a no vacancy sign in Bethlehem, and it ends with the spitting and scoffing in the cross in Jerusalem. God is for you, and is working for your good, and is with you always. There may be moments where it's harder to see what he is doing, but we trust We trust that the God who could use a governmental decree to take a young couple 100 miles from their home at just the right time so that the child is born in Bethlehem as was promised long before can take the events of your life right now and turn them into something glorious and something wonderful in the long run. It might not feel like it in the moment. In the moment, you will have trouble, Jesus says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Your eternal joy, your, your long joy after this life is past you will still be happy in Christ do you trust that in his sovereign workings he has not and will not forget about you right here today he has not forgotten you and he will not forget you Do you feel that you are beyond God's power right now, that the the events of your life somehow, you're, you're outside of his power, there's nothing he can really do to help you right now, you're too far gone. Well, look at the God who made a virgin become pregnant and moved this family at just the right time to Bethlehem to happen according to promise and trust that you are not too far gone from his power to change. And do you feel that you're too far gone beyond his care, beyond his loving gaze? Well, see the one who made for himself a human body lived among us. He didn't stay far off and distant. He didn't stay atop this high and holy mountain. He came down to be with us. And he is still with us today by his spirit. And so rest in God's comforting presence. Rest in his ever-knowing gaze. Rest in his ever-loving care for you, his children. But let's also be a word of challenge to us. It's a comfort, but it's also a challenge. Because if all that is true, we believe that, we're comforted by that, then we must live like it's actually true. Our lives must reflect it, that we actually Believe it. It is one thing to believe that God is sovereign. It is one thing to believe that God is near, and it is quite another to actually live like it. It's quite another to actually have our lives reflected. We can trust that the Lord is God over Caesar. And yet, how do we respond when we are sent on a journey that we didn't anticipate and that we didn't ask for, much like Mary and Joseph? What then? Do you really believe? that he is sovereign and do you really believe that he is good in those moments do you still believe that he is reigning over all and has not abdicated his throne now you might confess hey okay God was working in Caesar's time but what about still today do you still believe he's working now now it might be true that your plans and your purposes are thwarted by the latest election for another two years or another four years but do you know whose purposes are never thwarted by an election it's God's He is still on the throne. In fact, the prophet Daniel says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons and he removes kings and sets up kings. Friends, the fulfillment of God's purposes has not been put on hold because President Biden is in the White House or because Putin is moving in Russia or because the queen has died or because there's been changes in the UK prime ministers. The Lord God reigns supreme over all of them and is accomplishing his purposes still today. Do we live like that's true? I'm not saying you just sit back and do nothing. God uses human means to accomplish his purposes. And so where we see evil, there's right to push back against evil. Where we see a path toward increasing godliness, there's right to take that path and continue to walk in that. But it does mean that we don't live and conduct ourselves in such a way as the world does. And it certainly means that our hope does not rest in the same place the world's hope rests. Do we actually live like we believe that God is still on the throne and that he is still for you and still with you? It's so a challenge to us to actually live like we believe. It. There's a calm confidence in the midst of the things of our life that trust that because the Lord has not abdicated His throne and because He is still using His reign to bring about all things for His glory and for your eternal good, that we can rest in Him. So, are you living your life right now with the confidence that God is in control and He is with you now by His Spirit? Do you believe? That because of Christ Jesus, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus your Lord. Let's live like God is sovereign, and let's live like God is near to us right now. And if this is a word of comfort and a word of challenge to us, let it also be a word of celebration let it also be a cause for our great rejoicing because the king of the universe was born as a human being in a manger in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph for us. See the mighty king held in the arms of his mother? Do you See the eternal word who is now wordless as he cries as a baby? Do you see the one who had made the human body now himself embodied within one? This birth is the evidence of God with us. And the circumstances of his birth in a manger in Bethlehem is the evidence of who he came for humble sinners like you and I. It wasn't to the powerful, it wasn't to the elite, it wasn't to the kings, it was to us. And let this be a cause for our great rejoicing that he sees those who feel unseen. He hears those who feel unheard. He knows those who feel unknown. He loves those who feel unloved, and he is with those who feel alone even now. See, at his birth, it might have seemed like Caesar Augustus was in control, but really it was the king of kings who was lying in a manger in Bethlehem. And at his death, it may have seemed like Pontius Pilate was in control, but in reality it was the Lord of Lords who stood in chains beside him. Things don't always happen as we expect or like they seem. Joseph and Mary were led to Bethlehem according to promise, and Jesus the Christ was led to Calvary according to promise, all to accomplish God's purposes of redeeming his children. The baby born in the manger is the Savior, the one who would deliver all of his people from their sins. A humble Savior come for humble sinners. God made man to be with man, to bring man to God for all who believe in him. It's a beautiful song, captures it well. It says, Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all of our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. He's born to reign in us forever because he deserves all glory in the universe. Our text began, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and the title Augustus denotes majesty, exaltation, and worship, but it was not Caesar who is worthy of it. It's not Caesar who's worthy of our praise, worthy of our adoration, worthy of majesty. Today Caesar Augustus lies dead in a tomb, and his legacy lives on simply through statues, and the Lord Christ reigns supreme on the throne of the universe even still today. He is the one worthy of all majesty, all glory, and all exaltation, both today and forevermore. And so in our day with so much vying for our attention, so much vying for our praise, our prayer is may Christ rule in our hearts alone this day. May he have the supreme spot of authority. May he receive all majesty, glory, and dominion forever and ever in our hearts. Father, we ask that you would do this. We thank you. For your gift of your son to us to rescue and redeem us and we pray that he would reign in our hearts today and that in all things we might exalt his great name. We ask this in his name. Amen.